0: That was one of those moments where I just realized, like, wow, this is not, you know, there's something very special about these about these animals, and that wasn't the only time that I saw behavior like that, especially with the mothers and their calves, um, and, they're, and, and just as a species in general, like, they're so protective um, of each other.
1: Hello there, and welcome to Voices of Greater Yellowstone. I'm your host, Kristin Kuhn. First, a very big thank you to our supporters for helping us reach our 10th episode. It's early fall in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, which means that the skies are smoky, the days are getting shorter, and fall colors are just around the corner. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam. This 19th century poem line turned western song lyric evokes days past when wild bison covered the wide open spaces across North America. But these days, the only place wild American plains bison can be witnessed in large free-roaming herds is within Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone bison are the descendants of just two dozen animals who found refuge in Yellowstone's high interior during the mass extermination of bison that took place in the late 1800s at the hands of European settlers and the American military. Today, around 5,450 bison roam Yellowstone, but you may be surprised to learn that unlike other wild animals that are free to move in and out of the park, bison are largely confined to Yellowstone. On today's episode, we'll sit down with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition's own Senior Wildlife Conservation Associate, Shana Drimmel. Shana is a wildlife biologist by training who spends her days working to restore bison to the American West and make it easier for people and bison to coexist. We'll discuss why she thinks bison are the coolest, hear a remarkable story about a mother bison devoted to her calf, and learn about some of the challenges we face in trying to restore bison to their ancestral habitat beyond Yellowstone National Park itself. So get ready to learn a whole lot about North America's largest land mammal, the bison. Bison.
0: So my name is Shayna Drimmel. I am a Senior Wildlife Conservation Associate for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. I currently lead our bison program here at GYC, working to restore Yellowstone bison to tribal and public ancestral lands throughout the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem and beyond.
1: Beautiful. So tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you find yourself working on bison conservation issues in the GYE?
0: Yeah, I've often wondered that myself. Um, <laughs> no, it's a great question. So I really started working on bison conservation as an advocate or in the advocacy realm when I started at GYC back in early 2015. Um, so I'm a wildlife biologist and researcher by training. So before coming to GYC, I spent you know, most of my adult life working as a field biologist and researcher. Um, in the field, studying a whole host of some of our most iconic and controversial species, including uh, grizzly bears and wolves and uh, elk, um, a whole host of African carnivores in Zambia, and then, of course, bison. And actually, I first became interested in bison ecology while doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Utah there, um... I did a, a independent study on bison nutritional ecology on the herd of bison that is on Antelope Island mm. there in the middle of the Salt Lake. So I guess I was really intrigued by this population of bison living in the middle <laughs> of the Salt Lake on an island. Um, so that was that was a long time ago. Um, that's kind of my first introduction to bison. Um, but then. Yeah, over the years, so I worked for many years uh, in the interior of Yellowstone National Park um, on a large mammal ecology study out of Montana State University, um, studying uh, wolf and elk and bison, basically large ungulate um, ecology and predator prey interactions. And it was through that project that I spent um, just a lot of time, many winters living and working in the interior of Yellowstone, tracking and following the bison there, trying to learn about their movements and their migrations and their habitat use, um, as well as the predator-prey interactions um, between wolves and grizzly bears and elk and bison and how that that differs between each of those species. So through that experience and all those years that I really fell in love with bison as a species, um, they're just—they're incredible. Um, they're resilient, and they're just so incredibly adapted to their environment. And um, you know, I learned all about how important they are to the ecosystem and how much they influence the ecosystem. And and at the same time, learned a lot about how how like complex and controversial uh, the restoration of the species has been and their journey has been, um, you know, they have faced <laughs> just great challenges over the years from essentially almost being wiped out and near extinction at the hands of people, um, to now finally, you know, making a comeback in the last 50 to hundred years. So, um, yeah. And I realized also then through this experience that, um, that there was a, a strong need for, you know, like practical science-based approach to managing the species, um, and also a great need for, um, education. Um, there's a lot of, uh, misunderstanding around the species and fear around bison. And, um, and I just felt this, this like need, you know, to do something more than just study them. I wanted to get out on the landscape and talk to people and, you know, hear their concerns and also talk to them about what we know now about how important they are for the healthy functioning of an ecosystem. And, and the fact that like, we have all these great tools that I believe um, can result in successful coexistence. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really think that people and bison can coexist in not all areas, but in many areas. So yeah, so I felt the strong desire to do that. And This job came up, and I went for it, and I got it, and here I am still today. So
1: would you say that your sort of decision to orient your career around bison was something that happened kind of organically for you, or was there that key moment where you're like, actually, you know, I've studied a lot of different charismatic megafauna, but this is a species that was really calling to me, and this is where I want to focus my energy?
0: Yeah, I think, well, I think it's both. I think I was pretty open to... You know, I, I was really just passionate about the study of wildlife ecology um, in general, and you know, very much interested in predator-prey prey dynamics. Um, I, I did. I, I grew a great fondness and respect for bison as a species over the years, and just felt like, gosh, these the species like they need to be here. It's a species that we can all benefit from on the landscape, and it's also the most probably one of the most difficult issues. Um, that we work on in this ecosystem. And so I guess part of me was just like, I want to work on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's kind of just evolved, I guess, organically over the years, especially once coming to GYC, feeling like, okay, this is definitely my niche. Like, this is where I need to be. Um, so, yeah, I first started off working on grizzly bears and wolves and other species at GYC, and I've
1: kind of just, now
0: I'm really focused on bison at this point.
1: So very use word dynamic which I think is really apt to talking about bison because there's so many different um, sort of tangential issues and complexities with the bison topic um, but let's start with the basics like tell us what this animal is in case anybody's listening who happens to have just never heard the word bison before describe this animal for us
0: yeah, so a bison is a large hoofed mammal or ungulate of the bovine family, similar to cattle and other species of buffalo. They are considered the largest land mammal in North America. Uh, they are nomadic grazers, so they feed on grass primarily. And in the wild, they typically travel in large herds across you know, large landscapes in search of food. Um, Prior to European settlement, American bison numbered in the tens of millions, roaming the the Great Plains and grasslands um, of North America from central Canada to Mexico. Uh, And in fact, um, they ranged more widely across the landscape than any other
1: native uh, large herbivore. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So you you mentioned the role they play in the ecosystem. Can you describe for us what that is? What is that? that they sort of do in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem?
0: Yeah, so bison are native to the GYE, um, and they they are inextricably tied to the ecological and cultural history of this landscape. Um, They're considered an important keystone species and ecosystem engineers of grassland ecosystems. So their migrations, grazing patterns, and behavior literally shape the physical environment um, creating habitat and benefiting a whole host of other species including amphibians and insects grassland birds Um, so restoring bison to grassland communities both in the gye uh, and beyond supports native vegetation health and regeneration Um, the way that they graze actually increases plant species diversity and the nutritional quality and quantity of forage Um, while helping to control noxious noxious and invasive weeds. And this, I'll just say too, could have important implications from a climate change and resiliency standpoint. Uh, Many people don't realize the importance of healthy grassland ecosystems serving as an important and essential carbon sink. Um, And bison can potentially restore and maintain the health of Um, these grassland ecosystems that honestly have suffered pretty severe degradation since bison have left this landscape and as a result of agricultural practices, including livestock grazing. Bison also serve as an important food source for native predators um, in the GYE and elsewhere, including wolves and grizzly bears, and for people through, you know, tribal and state hunting. You know, beyond their ecological importance, importance is the cultural piece Uh, You know, the extirpation and near extinction of wild bison was directly tied to the removal of indigenous people from these ancestral lands. And an immense loss of culture and way of life, um, including connection between tribal youth and the buffalo and diminished health of Native Americans, is all sort of related to the loss of buffalo. Um, So restoring bison to the G O A E landscape and beyond represents much-needed hope, and a path towards healing for many indigenous communities. Um, you know, I think I could spend the entire podcast talking about <laughs> why bison should be here and why they're so important to this landscape and beyond. Um, but really, I think we all benefit from, from the species on this landscape.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting when you talk about bison as ecosystem engineers, I think you know, it could be a new concept to people to think about how the presence of a specific species on the landscape can actually change that landscape. Not just because, oh, hey, look, I look over there and there's a bison, but because that animal is actually affecting change on the world around it, which then means that in the absence of these animals, the land also changes. So mm-hmm. the land sort of must respond to their absence as well. So it's like we are living in a you know profoundly different world without the bison, Absolutely. So let's talk about this disappearance. So, you know, you mentioned that there were tens of millions of bison across North America, and that is not the case anymore. No. What happened? <laughs> yeah, so
0: as European Americans settled the West in the 1800s, uh, unfortunately, the federal government began a campaign to remove Native American tribes from the landscape by taking away their primary food source and lifeblood, which was bison, um, also known as buffalo. And actually by 1902, after years of intensive market hunting and commercial slaughter, uh, bison numbers were reduced to less than two dozen. And these last remaining wild bison had found refuge in the high elevation interior of Yellowstone National Park.
1: Right. So you mentioned a federal campaign to exterminate Native Americans, so I think a lot of people think that bison or buffalo were hunted out of existence. You know, maybe from trophy hunting, and really there was a more intentional and strategic uh, reason for the removal of bison because it directly contributed to the obliteration of Native Americans. Correct. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I mean the U.S. Army was tasked with removing buffalo yeah. by the mass.
1: And they were really successful at it and so we ended up with a couple dozen wild bison high up in the middle of yellowstone national park Mm -hmm. and so um let's talk about yellowstone bison then so the bison that exist in yellowstone today are descendants of those holdouts correct Mm -hmm. so let's talk about yellowstone bison what makes them so special
0: gosh yeah it's hard to overstate Um, The cultural and ecological significance of these bison here in Yellowstone. Um, They really, truly are special and unique. Um, So not only are they the the largest population of free roaming plains bison in existence today, so there's about 6,000 currently in Yellowstone, um, many consider them the last remaining truly wild herd of plains bison in existence. Um, That is what's called ecologically viable. They're genetically pure. They're large and wide-ranging. Um, they descended from the last wild herd in North America, as you mentioned. And a cool fact is that Yellowstone is the only place in the U.S. where bison have continuously lived since prehistoric times. Um, they, these bison are a reservoir of some of the most valuable genetics for the long-term conservation of this species. Um, you know, Bison in Yellowstone are still exposed to a whole host of natural selection factors, such as predation, harsh climatic and environmental conditions, you know, harsh winters. Um, and given their large numbers have retained much of this genetic diversity and many of the adaptations that have been lost in other more domesticated or smaller herds um, that exist throughout the country. Um, and then also this herd has unparalleled significance to many Native American tribes who see Yellowstone bison as uniquely, linked to their ancestral descendants. Um, In fact, 49 tribes have direct cultural and ancestral ties to bison in Yellowstone and consider the lands and resources of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem as sacred.
1: So really important, magnificent, impactful critters. Yes. Um, There's so much that can be said about bison and buffalo what do you think just as somebody who spent a bunch of time studying these animals was just like one really cool thing about them?
0: (laughs) Oh, bison are so cool. (laughs) You know, I, bison are true relics of the Pleistocene era. So their ancestors roamed the continent with saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths. So
1: I just think that is so cool. (laughs) So like, if we dropped back into the Pleistocene, would we see an animal that was easily recognizable as a bison? Yeah, like oh, there it is. Yep, there's a bison. Cool. <laughs> Do you have any particularly memorable moments from your time actually studying bison in the park, or any you know memories that you'd be willing to share with us? I have many. Um, so there's one.
0: Yeah, there's one memory a more experience that sticks out in my mind um, that I'll share with you. So when I was living and working in the Madison Firehole area of Yellowstone in the interior um, for that large mammal ecology project, um, I had to get up every morning, hop on my snowmobile and with my radio telemetry and, you know, before the sun came up and, and drive the different drainages and check for wolf presence, so check for wolf signals, so there's, in the fire hole drainage, there's this hill that we used to climb up called Porcupine Hill, and it was where we would go to check signals um, and check for wolf presence out in this area called Fountain Flats. And so I'm up there checking wolf signals one morning. It's just starting to get light, and um, sure enough, I picked up the presence of one of the wolf packs. I think it was the Gibbon Pack. Um Anyways, but so I picked them up, and I immediately got my binoculars out and spotted them out there, and they had surrounded um, a bison cow, so cow bison, female bison, and her calf. So the cow was like, she was standing over her calf, and the wolves were, you know, darting in and out um, trying to, to get at the calf, and they were, she was ro- rolling around and de- defending her, you know, defending her little baby there, and you know, they would get bites in here and there, um, both into her and that calf. Um, and this, this went on for hours. I stayed up there and just watched, um, you know, unfortunately over time they got enough bites into that calf that, um, it died from its injuries, but she still stood there and protected it long after it was dead on the ground. And, At a certain point, you know, the wolves would, they would get tired and they would lay down and just kind of rest, you know, about 30 meters away from her, all around her and just like, all right, they're exhausted. And then she would just stand there and she was not going anywhere. Um, you know, eventually I had to leave and go do some other things, you know, and that evening I came back to check again, they were still there, um, still waiting, watching, and she was still stood there over her dead calf, um. I just thought wow that's impressive and um so the next morning I came back I was like okay well I'm sure she's gone now they've they've probably made a meal of that that little calf and um she was still there (laughs) she was still there standing over that calf um and so were their wolves and they were kind of just like off playing and doing their thing but still in the area watching waiting and you know um eventually the wolves left, they gave up and they left. And, um, later on that evening I came back and she had finally left too. But that was just, that was one of those moments where I just realized like, wow, this is not, you know, there's something very special about these, about these animals. And that wasn't the only time that I saw behavior like that, especially with the mothers and their calves. Um, and their and, and just as a species in general, like they're so protective um, of each other, and you know many other species um I have seen you know and tracked and learned about you know they the mothers would have taken off in a heartbeat um, like like elk, for example, we studied elk um, uh, as well, and this is kind of sad, but we used to call elk calves get out of jail free cards
1: <laughs> oh, oh no <laughs> yeah,
0: and the reason being is that um you know, wolves would come into an area and you know go after a, a herd of elk, and um, the the mothers would just take off and leave their calves in the dust, and that and usually the wolves would would get the calf, but that enabled you know the the cow to get away and and um, escape the attack, and so just very different. Um, and as a mother myself, I can just totally relate like I I would give my life for my kids and and this you know especially in this particular incident, this um this cow was obviously willing to do the same she wasn't going anywhere so um yeah that was just a very touching uh, experience for me and it's always stuck with me many many years later
1: yeah clearly I mean you were a scientist and a researcher and presumably trained in you know impartial observation yes. of the natural world <laughs> but you know what was that experience like you for you emotionally
0: yeah i mean it was just touching and yeah even though i'm a trained scientist and all of that i mean i still have seen you see a lot of hard stuff you know in the natural world i mean when working in africa you know seeing like lions you know very very up close you know, taking, taking down a prey species or especially a young animal in particular pulls at the heart, heartstrings for me anyways, the babies. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of how things work and, um, you just, you carry on and you feel that pain and the empathy and you just, I think it's okay. You just, yeah, you know, you don't want to impart that in your, you know, data collection or trying to understand, you know, right, certain things, but it's okay to to feel that, I think so, yeah,
1: there's a a place, a place for all of it, yeah, definitely, so let's get into a little bit of the challenges that we face when talking about bison conservation. So they're this incredibly important, unique, moving species,, uh, but that doesn't mean that the um, effort to restore them back to you know, the, their habitat is without road bumps. So for starters, you talked about bison being nomadic grazers. So they are these migratory animals that like to roam and cover these vast distances. And as such, they're often trying to leave Yellowstone national park. We know that there is a park boundary there. We roll in in our cars and show our interagency pass and, you know, pay the fee and get in bison don't know where the lines of the park are. Um, so in you know, trying to follow their natural instincts. They're trying to often leave the park, but they can't. It's not that straightforward. So tell us a little bit about why bison aren't, you know, allowed to just migrate out of the park and follow those natural instincts that they have.
0: Yeah. So I'll just start with, so Yellowstone National Park is really a high elevation plateau. Um, You know, much you know, when, when, they, when they drew the lines and, you know, created that park, I don't think they were thinking of, you know, ungulate species and prey species and, and migratory movement patterns and, and wildlife in general, actually. I think it was more kind of focused on the geothermal aspects of the park at the time. Um, Bison are naturally migratory species, um, just like many other migrating ungulates, including elk and pronghorn. um, Much of their winter range exists in the lower elevation valley, bottom areas uh, outside of the park. And so every winter, um, many bison attempt to leave the park to access Um, this winter habitat. Um, And there's also, this also includes calving grounds as well for bison in the spring. Um, But because of limited tolerance for wild bison in Montana, um, many are rounded up and sent to slaughter every year as they attempt to leave the park following what's called the Interagency Bison Management Plan, um, also known as the IBMP. This was first implemented back in the year 2000 as a result of a court-mediated settlement when the state of Montana sued Yellowstone for allowing bison to leave the park and enter Montana. Now, I just want to point out too that, um, you know, all other species in Yellowstone are allowed to move in and out of the park freely. Um, You know, wildlife species, they don't you know, the, the park is not fenced, and they don't know where that line is. And their habitat extends beyond the boundary of Yellowstone. The goal of the IBMP was and still is to significantly limit bison numbers as well as their distribution outside of the park, through, primarily through um, capture and slaughter, as well as hazing bison back into the park. Um, on the surface, this lack of tolerance is due to fears around disease transmission risk because many bison in Yellowstone have been exposed to a disease called brucellosis. Uh, The livestock community is fearful that wild bison roaming beyond the park boundary could transmit the disease to livestock on the landscape, which could have economic repercussions to the livestock industry and to producers. Um, So this has never actually happened in the wild, however. And we do know now that elk and the GYE are the, the primary culprits. There's been um, now over 30 transmission events in the GYE, and all have been linked back to Greater Yellowstone elk. Um, so GYE elk also carry brucellosis. So, um, but yet you know, elk are allowed to roam freely in and out of the park. Bison are not. So many believe this is more about competition for grass um, with cattle on the landscape, as well as human safety concerns. Um, you know, on a deeper level, I think it's also about a fear of change and a loss of control, you know, state rights versus fed rights, and the fact that wild bison symbolize the resilience of native cultures. Um, obviously, these some of these deep-seated uh, beliefs and fears, you know, this is stuff that's going to take you know, a long time, um, to change. But, you know, again, I do think that there's so much that can be done now from getting on the ground and connecting with folks and listening to their concerns and talking with them about all the effective tools that do exist. Um, and that can be implemented to ensure that livestock and people are safe and to promote successful coexistence with wild bison.
1: Yeah. So what, um, what exactly is brucellosis? So you mentioned that bison were exposed to it and now there's some, you know, surface level fears of them transmitting it to cattle, but you know, sort of what's the history of that disease and then what does it actually cause in the animals that carry it?
0: Brucellosis is a European livestock disease that was introduced into the park in the early 1900s by dairy cows that were being held in in the Lamar Valley. Um, and so after, um, after many years of efforts across the country, it has been eradicated in all of our livestock, um, but it still exists in this reservoir in GYE wildlife. Um, so the disease can be transmitted to livestock um, and it does induce abortions or stillbirths in infected animals in the first um, one to two years of their reproductive lives. Um, and this can have economic impacts on ranchers because it affects the marketability of their animals, especially due to regulations around disease transmission.
1: Right. So you mentioned that elk, um, there's been some confirmed cases of elk transmitting brucellosis to livestock, but that's not the case for bison.
0: Yeah. So even if bison were allowed to truly like roam freely outside of the landscape, um, it's still more likely that elk are going to transmit that. Disease to livestock on the landscape, and it has to do with the timing of parturition. So, elk um, are pregnant and give birth a little bit later into the season than bison do. The timing of when elk are likely to abort a fetus and um, it overlaps more with the timing that livestock are likely to be on the landscape in this ecosystem. So uh, and I, I guess I'll just go back and, and just say that the way that it's actually transmitted in the natural environment is through contact with like, fetal tissue on the landscape. So a fetus is aborted, it's on, it's on the grass, you know, and another animal comes along to eat that grass and picks up some of that bacteria, and
1: then now they have been exposed to the bacterium. So despite the existence of brucellosis in the wild bison population, there are some efforts to try to get bison out of the park onto, you know, appropriate public lands and tribal lands sort of across Montana and elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts? So brucellosis being a tricky disease to manage. Um, bison are not with brucellosis are really not allowed to leave the park so what is the park doing to try to kind of navigate that situation
0: yeah so okay so because about 40 to 60 percent of yellowstone bison carry the disease brucellosis or they have been um, exposed to the disease brucellosis they we cannot simply um Rehome these bison to other places, like with other Department of Interior herds. Um, that is something that they definitely do, unless they have first been certified as disease free according to Montana law. So, over the last decade, um, we and our conservation and tribal partners, many state and federal agencies, with Yellowstone National Parks leadership, um, developed what's called the Yellowstone Bison Conservation Transfer Program. Um, and it's through this program that disease-free Yellowstone bison can be identified through a multi-step quarantine process and used to establish new tribal and conservation herds elsewhere. So the way the process works is some bison captured during winter roundups as they are t- attempting to leave the park are then entered in a quarantine rather than being sent to slaughter. Uh, the number of bison that can enter the program depends on how much room there is at the current facility just inside Yellowstone. And then once they're in the program, animals complete uh, the first two phases of testing at the Yellowstone facility, either or at a facility down the road um, that is being leased by APHIS currently. So Avis and the state of Montana health officials certify bison as brucellosis-free at the completion of this second phase of testing, which takes about one to one and a half years for males and two and a half to three years for females. Um, And then these bison are then allowed to be transferred to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation where they complete their final year of what's called assurance testing. Um, And then following this, the Fort Peck tribes transfer some of these bison to the Intertribal Buffalo Council, um, who distributes them to member tribes throughout North America.
1: Amazing. So that sounds like a lot of effort. (laughs) Um, So why is it worth it? Why is quarantine the best solution for these bison? So I think,
0: you know, the use of quarantine and transfer, um, it really serves as a viable alternative to shipping Yellowstone bison to slaughter to manage their numbers. Um, I think it's important to point out that this population is growing exponentially without human intervention. So they have a really high reproductive rate and a really low mortality rate. So bison numbers, they have to be managed somehow and currently, there is only very limited hunting opportunity outside Yellowstone for that to serve as a sufficient tool to manage numbers. And you know that's a tool that is used for many other wildlife species, um, but it currently is not really an effective tool for for bison at this time. The program will also help to preserve the unique Yellowstone bison genome or genetics that I talked about earlier. Um, There's also great interest among tribal nations in using Yellowstone's culturally significant and genetically pure wild bison to restore herds on tribal and public lands. Um, This program is a way to do that. It's a way to support and restore the culture, the economy, food sovereignty, and nutrition of many Native American tribes and ultimately contribute to the conservation and restoration of the species to portions of its native range on public and tribal lands across the continent.
1: And the Greater Yellowstone Coalition um, actually partnered with Yellowstone National Park on a recent expansion of the Bison Conservation Transfer Program quarantine facility, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that partnership?
0: Yeah, so last year we partnered with um, Yellowstone National Park and Yellowstone Forever to raise the funds needed to uh, more than double the capacity of the Yellowstone facility. And the reason for that is because a significant number of bison that um, were being captured and were also quarantine eligible were then having to go on and be sent to slaughter because there wasn't enough room for them to enter the program due to capacity issues at the facility. And in fact, that number was somewhere around 70, 75% of bison that you know were eligible were then going on and being sent to slaughter. And so with this recent expansion effort, um, that reduced that number down closer to 20 to 30 percent and so it's fantastic um you know this expansion which was just completed this month um added three additional pens to the facility some new water infrastructure which was necessary to bring in more bison as well as a new low stress testing area um yeah and we're we're just super excited You know, we don't want to stop there, though. We want to continue to grow this program so that eventually, you know, all quarantine eligible bison that are captured can enter this program and eventually be rehomed to tribal lands Mm -hmm. and hopefully public lands. Um, And, you know, for example, we're trying to identify um, a a new place somewhere within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, to develop a new quarantine facility. Um, so we can create sort of a steady pipeline of Yellowstone bison available for restoration efforts.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. You know, so often in conservation work, you know, what we do feels very abstract and kind of t- like nebulous. And um, it's amazing to be able to point to like specific animals, individual animals that, you know, can go through a program like this because Mm -hmm. now there's space for them, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, congratulations to you on your, your role in that. I think that's so inspiring.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the collective effort of so many people Mm -hmm. and, and, um, yeah, I just feel so grateful to be a part of it. It's a really special program.
1: Yeah. Truly takes a village and then maybe another village and another village. (laughs) Um, (laughs) tell us a little bit more about the other bison programs that you work on with GYC, for example, like the coexistence program, where you're trying to build tolerance for bison on the landscape. Um, talk, talk about that a little bit for us.
0: Yeah. So, you know, before working, you know, on this expansion effort and the transfer program, a lot of our focus over the last 10 to 20 years um, has really been on trying to secure additional habitat for Yellowstone bison to use outside of Yellowstone. You know, because originally, um, you know, before the year 2000, bison, there was basically zero tolerance for for Yellowstone bison beyond the park boundary. And so, you know, we we really wanted to like, you know, help secure some areas for them to go um, so they can start to carry out some of this natural migratory behavior and access important calving areas. And so that's really been our focus, Um, and much of that work involved, uh, and still does, working to reduce potential conflicts on the landscape. For example, through voluntary grazing allotment buyouts to remove potential cattle conflicts on the landscape, um, as well as land leases. And back in 2011, we began a program called the Yellowstone Bison Coexistence Program in partnership with some of our conservation NGO partners. And the idea with that program is to um, basically help people on the landscape in these communities outside the park um, reduce the potential for conflicts with wild bison roaming beyond the park boundaries by providing financial and technical assistance to build. What are called bison exclusion fences on private property to keep bison off of private property to protect landscaping and gardens and livestock and pets and children. Um, yeah, and since we since that program started, we've completed now I think fifty six projects in the uh, Gardner Basin area and the Hebken Basin area west of the park. Um, it's yeah, it's a fantastic program. It's really, I think done a lot to, you know, help promote tolerance for the species and just help folks like, you know, help them with the tools that they need to, to successfully coexist, um, with bison on the landscape and to also just really enjoy them. And um, people really, when you get out in the landscape and you talk to these folks living in these communities with bison. For the most part they love them they love being able to sit on their back deck and watch bison grazing and moving through the area and you know they just don't want them like trampling their garden and mm-hmm. wrecking their, their you know eating their trees and so it's yeah it's it's a pretty cool program and um it's been a huge success you know more recently um so back in as a result of a lot of this work i sort of helped prime the landscape for Um, The return of bison and I think was really essential in the uh, establishment and then expansion of what are called bison tolerance areas over the years. Um, So now we have, you know, more than 370,000 acres of bison tolerance areas, both west and north of the park where they're allowed to go um, as a I think direct result of a lot of this work over the years to reduce potential conflicts, and you know, very few cattle now exist in these areas on the landscape. Um, and that was really essential to to getting that. And um, and then more recently, we've been focused on um, trying to work towards you know, helping to to reestablish those migration patterns um, into these areas. Because unfortunately, a lot of these areas are still sitting kind of empty of bison. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we could spend a whole podcast probably talking about that issue. But, um, you know, one of the things that we're we're hoping to do is to work with the Custer-Gallatin National Forest to do some habitat improvement projects on the forest following direction from the new forest plan. Um, And we fought really hard to get some new plan direction um, that supports bison use of the forest within these tolerance areas. And so that's another area that we're, we're trying to focus on. Um, and then I'll also mention, too, recently Yellowstone National Park began the process to write a new Yellowstone Bison Management Plan and Environmental Impact Statement. And this, this will be basically the guiding document for the park um, for how they will manage this bison population into the foreseeable future. Um, and, you know, we really see this as a really important opportunity to update, you know, how these bison are managed because they've been, they've been managed for the last 20 years under the IBMP, which was implemented back in the year 2000. And we have made so much progress since that time, so much project progress. And so, um, it's, it's time to update the plan. And I think it's time to look at what the population objective should be for this park and, to look at ways to really help promote um, bison use of the landscape beyond the park boundary and support treaty hunting and treaty access to, um, and tribal access to, to these bison. And um, so this is an important opportunity that's going to be coming up. They did start um, the initial process of this this past February um, for during public scoping, and um, they will be doing another public comment period, probably um, sometime this winter on the draft EIS. So I would encourage everybody to get involved in that. And we will definitely be getting involved in that heavily.
1: Awesome. So big opportunity to try to move more toward managing bison like wildlife as opposed to like livestock. Yes. So... Quick pitch for our newsletter, for anybody listening, you should roll over to www.greateryellowstone.org and sign up for our newsletter because we will keep you informed when there is an opportunity to comment on the bison management plan. And you can definitely help GYC um, push for the most sort of progressive and um, just strongest bison management plan moving forward because it's certainly time to update that and really update our relationship with this incredible species. Um, Anything else that you think folks can do to, you know, help take action for for Bison?
0: Yeah, I just, you know, I would encourage folks to, you know, to sign up, you know, get on our our email list and, you know, reach out to me. I am more than happy to email with people and chat with people on the phone. I do all the time. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to get in touch with me and yeah, just stay in touch, um, so that we can keep you posted on the different things that are coming, you know, they're going to be coming up in the future and ways that you can get involved and way, the way that you can like speak out and, and try and advocate for, you know, a better
1: future for these bison. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Um, one question that we really like to ask all of our guests, Do you have a conservation or science hero or someone who, you know, you found particularly inspiring or influential to you over, over the years?
0: I, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I feel like I have so many, (laughs) you know, I think looking back, I have to say that, the most influential conservation science hero in my life was actually a college professor that I had um, back at the University of Utah. His name was Dr. Fred Montag. Um, I took many environmental studies and wildlife ecology classes with him. And, you know, when I started undergrad, undergrad, I was pretty lost. Um, you know, I'd grown up like animal crazy. I mean, any I loved animals, right? But I didn't know... I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought about vet school. I just, I was kind of all over the place. I was a little bit lost. Um, so, but Fred changed that for me in a really big way. I really fell in love with the study of ecology um, and just became totally in infas- like fascinated with the idea that you can't study a thing, whether that's a species or a phenomena or a human in isolation. Um, and that everything interacts with this environment and it's bi-directional and complex and the environment interacts with you. Um, So I was hooked and I can say that he set me on this path and is the reason why I am here today and doing what I'm doing for sure.
1: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right, Shana, we have some listener questions for you. I think it's a batch of good ones. Um, So first up, Gary from Idaho says, I am wondering if the exclusion of tourist traffic in the Lamar Valley area due to the spring floods has affected the bison movements in the area. Great question. Um,
0: So I do think that would be a question for a park biologist, but if I had to guess, probably not. Um, Unlike other species in the park, like wolves and grizzly bears that are more leery of people in traffic, Bison are pretty uninhibited by people and traffic. Um, they generally have no problem using their roads and creating bison jams and heavy traffic as probably a lot of people have experienced going to the park.
1: So yeah. They might be enjoying the peace or quiet, but they're not not—they're not particularly concerned with our presence anyway. Not really, yeah. <laughs> I just say of all the species in the park, they probably, yeah, care the least about us. <laughs> That's great. As is their right. Yes. Okay. Leah from California is wondering what the biggest misconception is out there about bison.
0: Well, apparently, as we've seen uh, too often in the news, um, that they are large, docile, furry cattle that you can walk up to for a photo op in Yellowstone and, or set your kid on. <laughs> Um, no wild bison are wild animals and like many other wild animals, they can be dangerous and feel threatened if people get too close. So it's
1: important to obey park guidelines and keep a distance of at least 25 meters. That's a good one. (laughs) You know, I'll actually add a funny answer to that. I don't know if it's a particularly common misconception, but one thing I've heard is people be surprised that bison are not extinct. Um, actually. hearing that from someone who worked in the park that they get a lot of questions or or sort of exclamations of surprise that bison are not extinct. They think that they're actually just a Pleistocene animal that do not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Wow. So That's a fun one.
0: I mean, I guess it's not all that surprising.
1: I mean, they came pretty close. So yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Next question. Jeff from Montana asks how many offspring will a cow bison have in a year? And how long does weaning take?
0: Yeah, so female bison, also known as cows, um, begin reproducing around two to three years of age and give birth to a single calf each spring. Um, Gestation period is around nine and a half months, so pretty similar to humans. And then calves, I think typically nurse for seven to eight months and are weaned by the end of their first year.
1: Okay, next question. Ryan from Montana wants to know, how do bison survive the cold? (laughs) Good question. Two million years of
0: evolution. That's how. <laughs> now, bison are well adapted to survive extreme winter conditions and cold. Um, for one, they are migratory, as we talked about. So they can move to lower elevation areas where there's less snow and milder temperatures. Um, then there's their physical adaptations. Um, extremely dense coat and thick layers of skin and fat to help insulate them from the cold. Um their muscular humps support their massive heads that serve as sort of snow plows to clear away deep snow and snow to access, you know, buried grass and food. So a
1: beautifully evolved yes. creature, well hey. adapted to this environment. Absolutely. Great question though. Okay. And finally, Amy from Washington DC is curious about what the difference is between a buffalo and a bison. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: So, in North America, the name bison and buffalo are often used interchangeably for the same animal. Um, The true scientific name is bison. Actually, it's bison, bison, bison. (laughs) Um, Bison is what the Western conservation and scientific community calls the species, while many tribes prefer uh, to use buffalo. Um, true buffalo, scientifically speaking, um, include the Cape buffalo and water buffalo of Africa and Asia. Um, the name bison comes from the Latin term for wild ox, and I guess buffalo is derived from the word, um, from the French word for beef. True, yeah.
1: And here at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, we do use those terms pretty much interchangeably. Our indigenous staff members prefer buffalo in our bison programs where we partner with lots of, you know, conservation partners, traditional conservation partners. We use the word bison, but we're pretty loosey-goosey with those terms here. Yeah, absolutely. Proudly so. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Shana, thank you so much for your time today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, and it was really fun to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. An enormous bull bison-sized thank you to Shana for stopping by the podcast and sharing her stories and expertise with us. We will drop Shana's email address in the show notes in case any of you would like to reach out to her. If you'd also like to heed our shameless call to action to become a bison advocate, the link to sign up will be there as well. We only skimmed the surface today of all the bison conservation work happening at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition and within many of our partnerships. From ongoing fencing initiatives to conducting outreach in the communities on the front lines of bison restoration, to our current work developing a robust tribal buffalo program out of our office in Fort Washakie on the Wind River Reservation, suffice it to say, we look forward to bringing you many more stories about these magnificent animals and the people fighting for them in episodes to come. As always, thank you for joining us and we will catch you next time for more stories from Greater Yellowstone.